All right, all right. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Feels funny not saying chapter 1, but we're not going to 1. Um, so we're, we're doing an introduction. Uh, I'm sorry, we're not doing an introduction. We did an introduction. We're doing the seven letters to the seven churches, which is contained within chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. We are not doing the whole book. Some of you are like, ah, oh, come on. Um, no, we're, 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 we're focusing on the letters um, because they matter. <laughs> they, they matter to us right now in a humongous way. Um, they are report cards, basically. They are report cards that, um, there you go, uh, that, um, that Jesus wrote to seven churches, um, and yet they were meant to be read, as you will see at the end of each letter, uh, in the churches, plural. So even though they were individual letters specific, specific to the churches they're writing to, they were all meant to be read in all the churches, including this one. And it's good for us um, often regularly to evaluate ourselves as a local body of believers, gospel carriers, to look at how we're doing. If we were to get a report card, it's fun to ask yourself, and scary once in a while, if Jesus was to send us a report card, what would it say? What would it read? What would it contain? Um, and I know that, that that's exciting to me as a pastor and equally is terrifying as a pastor because I know that we all have blind spots and things that we think we're doing well in or things that we can pat our back on when, um, when Jesus may have a, a different perspective on things. And so um, I think it's good for us collectively, and I know no better place in the Bible, even though like almost all the epistles, you're gonna find out, you're gonna get information on the church, right? Um, I think these are, are just the clearest um, narratives that we have of what the church should be about and what the church shouldn't be about. And so hopefully this blesses us, this uh, calibrates us, this, this tightens us up. Uh, and again, let's be honest with ourselves as we look through this. Um, I know this is gonna be hard for me um, as a pastor because I hold responsibility for the tone of what goes on here. I, 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 I believe that I'm primarily responsible, even though I'm not the chief shepherd, I'm the under shepherd, we'll get to that. But, but I have a responsibility by God in the calling and gifting he's given me um, to set a tone here. And, um, and so if there's other tones that are coming out of here, uh, basically the DNA that goes in, I, I, I need to be paying attention to the DNA that I'm putting into this thing. And so, uh, yeah, this is, this is going to be a little bit challenging. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, hopefully we're just utterly blessed by what we find. And we're gonna see every one of these seven letters basically broken into uh, three sections. There's a definite framework to each of these letters. Uh, the first thing that you see in every letter is the qualification of the author. This is Jesus. So Jesus opens every single letter to each church by qualifying with um, strong image imagery the reason why he's able to say the things he's about to say. He's gonna, he's gonna qualify why he has authority over the church, okay? The second part of the letter that we're gonna see in each one is the evaluation. This is the body of the letter, the evaluation of the church. This is the report card part. 
This is what they're doing well or not doing so well. And then it closes out each letter with uh, the concluding uh, words, which is the prize or the reward to the overcomer. So those are the three parts of each letter, the qualification of the author, the evaluation of the church, the prize to the overcomer. All right. That's going to be the pattern. Uh, Let's go ahead and read the text. First letter, Church of Ephesus. And um, again, the intro to this will be found on Table Talk. So go back if you want to find the introduction to these letters. Uh, We all sat around this week on Thursday morning, me, Brent, and Chad, and talked about basically the info that's pertinent um, to enter these letters as far as who wrote it, why he wrote it, how we should be interpreting these things, and um, all that stuff. So make sure that you go there to find that. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, I think we got to deal with the first character of this letter, which is the city of Ephesus itself. Um, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going to let you in on a little teensy secret. And this is true of a lot of scripture, but, but even more so here. If you really want to understand the language that Jesus chooses to use in these letters, you must look at the place and the culture at the time. The history A lot of times we can get bogged down in history that doesn't matter. This is one of those places where it matters. Otherwise, you're just going to think that Jesus is pulling out random words for whatever reason. And they're all, they all have um, extremely personal meanings that these guys would have felt and received due to where they were living. And we're going to look at some of that. So let's start with uh, Ephesians. Let's start with or Ephesus. Place. Where was this place? What was it like? Ephesus was, or is, actually today, in what we know as modern-day Turkey. All seven of these churches, if you look at a map at modern-day Turkey, they are all within the boundaries of modern-day Turkey. In fact, all seven of these churches Jesus is going to address existed in what's modern-day Turkey, not far from each other in the Mediterranean. They were pretty close. If my wife and I, we've talked, can go anywhere, because we've never been able to, like, really leave the States and go on a trip. Like, we, and we've, we've also kind of, we've, we've had fun talking, like, where would we go? What would we do? What would we see? And, of course, there's a whole list of things we'd like to see. But this is the top of our list. If we could go anywhere, we would go to where these churches used to be. If we could go anywhere, we, we would go to the Mediterranean and we would actually trace Paul's missionary journeys and, and see these ruins and see where these places used to be because there's just so much rich history there. Like it would be so cool to us to do. 
Um, at that time of the writing, this region was known as Asia Minor. The name Ephesus means darling. And it was a jewel. The streets were paved with basically marble. The buildings were marble. I mean, the place was posh. It was a standout city. It was standout in its architecture. It was standout in its population. And it was standout in its idolatry. It was a world-class city like we might think of Beijing or New York today. That's how it was at the time. It was big. It was swanky. It was cosmopolitan. It was cutting edge. It was trend-setting, and it was extremely evil. Very wicked. There were 14 major temples to idols erected and booming at the time of John, all centered around the greatest of them all, the Temple of Artemis, a.k.a. Diana. Some of you have heard of her, the goddess Diana, which was so great, that temple, and so grand that it was considered at the time one of the seven wonders of the world. And its existence and its popularity was all a result of its worship, which was basically sex. Therefore, it consisted of long parties, big orgies, and all kinds of sacrifices to her. And these were the primary people group. These people that spent all their time and their life in that temple, giving to Diana, were the primary people group that Christians were up against. They were the primary people group that Christians were trying to win. Imagine how hard that would have been had you not had a proper gospel mindset living in a place like that. The challenge being not becoming like them, but loving them to Jesus. How would you have done The primary place that the church made their gospel stand day in and day out in Ephesus was a place called the Agora, which was a huge marketplace in the center of town where citizens and people from all parts of the earth would be found. And so this was the mission field. This is where they would bump elbows. This is where gospel proclamation would, in large part, occur. The catch was that in order to enter the Agora on good terms each day, you had to pay homage to the emperor by dropping incense into the burn pot at the entrance to the marketplace. If you didn't do this when you entered, you were marked. You were known. And you had a really hard time doing life in town because of it. You had to pay your respects was the whole point and honor and loyalty to the Lord, quote-unquote, of the city, of the empire. How would you do with that, Christian, if that was our reality today? Apparently, they did well in spite of those obstacles and those challenges because Luke records in Acts 19 concerning Paul and the church that the authorities have both, quote, seen and heard their words, which is the gospel, and that they, Paul and the church in Ephesus, had persuaded and turned away a great number of people. There was a riot that actually happened there once over Paul. And it was because it was so effective. The church was so effective. The gospel was so effective in this place that was so wicked. And it was tripping people out. Now, overlooking the entire city at the highest point of Ephesus was a place, the palace, I'm sorry, of Domitian. And he was the Roman emperor at the time. If you 
late date the book of Revelation, which I'm not going to go into. This is a whole nother discussion, okay? And it falls into two different camps for two different reasons. Um, some date the, the writing of the book of Revelation during Nero, which would be early. Some uh, date it during Domitian, which would be late, which usually puts it in the 90s. And I'm going to go with that one for a lot of reasons. Go look into it, and it's an interesting study. But he was the, imp the emperor at the time. And at the highest point of the city is where he lived, so that everybody could see who was boss and so that he could see everybody. And outside his place at the highest point of the city, looking down, was a 50-foot statue of himself, Domitian, looking down at the city, reminding the people, reminding the Christians every day who was Lord. And the Caesars actually preferred referring to themselves in these terms, and they, they preferred other people to refer to them in terms like Lord, Master, Savior, Son of Man, God. Do you see a pattern there? And this is what the Christians lived under. Every single day when they would come outside, they would see that. They were constantly reminded of it. How would you do with that, Christian, if we had something like that here? And it would have been this Domitian who'd have been responsible for banishing John to the island of Patmos, which is where we're getting this letter from, to die a slow and a miserable death in solitude, which was about 50 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And I want to ask you this, considering everything we just saw, considering the character, the, the personality, the makeup of this city of Ephesus, how bad do you think John needed to hear these words that Jesus brought to him on that island that day. How bad do you think he needed to see Jesus, his real Lord? He must have been thinking, in a way, everything's lost. Domitian was the most brutal, brutal persecutor of the church when it comes to ancient Rome. He was killing them right and left. He was doing all kinds of stuff to these guys. They were not welcome. And of course, that's the whole reason why Paul was banished to the island. Uh, we see that actually back in, in chapter one, where he says he was put there for the sake of the work of the gospel. And so the gospel earned him a slow death on this, on this island. And he must have been thinking as he sat on this island, all is lost. Christianity has failed. The Roman Empire is strong and healthy and reigning. Considering this, considering the context that they lived in day in and day out, their earthly reality gives us a proper perspective and appreciation for the necessity of these letters, this vision coming to John and going to these churches. We can only imagine how tough it would have been for the Christian church to navigate everything that they had to navigate in that kind of culture. They needed these words. They needed these letters. They needed to know that Jesus knew what they were going through. They needed to know that he had not left them or abandoned them or forsaken them because all they saw and all they were tempted by and reinforced with was a godless world where evil prevailed. We're getting there here. 
John needed this vision as he lie in the scorching sun, abandoned to die. He needed to write and hear once more the words of chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which say grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. I don't know about you guys, but it is that thought that gets me out of bed in the morning sometimes. Jesus is coming back. This is the entire theme of this whole book. If you look in, in chapter 1, uh, the, the first four words of verse 7, Behold, He is coming. That's what this entire book is about. Jesus is coming. And He's going to drain the swamp when He comes. So like you and I don't have to trip on that. Like He's going to take everything that's crooked and make it straight. Everything that you and I long for and desire is coming with him for those who know him. And everything that you and I hate that we can't stand looking at when we see the news and we hear about what's going on around us will be no more. It'll be no more. Behold, he is coming. John needed to, he needed to hear that. He also needed to hear the next line that follows, which says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Because John's going, I'm here because of this king, and this king's ruling. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here, and this king's brutal. This dude's, this dude's got the con. He's got the power. He's got the authority. They're being pretty effective with their authority right now, Rome is. And he needed to see that, that, no, 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 actually, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. We need to remember this even when they're rulers that we don't agree with. Who put them there and who they're subject to. The first thing we did when there was the exchange of office a couple weeks ago was sat down with the young adult group and prayed for that man, and prayed for that cabinet, and prayed for the people as twisted as I, I think they might be in the flesh, we prayed God's grace and mercy upon them. Because ultimately they're subject to God. They need the mercy of God, just like you and I need the mercy of God to do what they need to do. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still in power. He's still ruling. ruling he's still reigning. He, he casts the last vote, the final vote, when elections go down. Okay? Even though it hardly felt it at the time to John and the church. They needed this vision as they were continually pushed to the margins of society, finding themselves swimming upstream against the accepted secular norms of a wicked and perverse worldview. I'm going to say something that I know you guys all know if you read your Bible, but you're not going to like it. The church was never meant to live in the center of the page. If you read your Bibles, the church is always meant to be in the margin. We are counterculture. We are punk rock. We are upside down to everything that's accepted and chased after in this world. We are meant to be backwards. We are meant to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. 
And so I get why the church is so upset right now with the trajectory that they see. It's because we're no longer popular in this country. And that excites me. Because we're actually moving to the place that we've always been designed to be, in the margin. And you know what's going to happen when we're in the margin and not in the middle? The gospel's actually going to matter again. Our voice is actually going to be loud again. The, God, it's, 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 the name of Christ is going to be necessary and strong again in the margin. And so you and I need to get comfortable. Make your bed in the margin. Because that's where we're going right now. And I want you to notice all these churches, everything, all of it, in the Bible, lived in the margin. None of them had what you and I have. None of them enjoyed what you and I have enjoyed for the last 300 years in this country. We are the spoiled ones. So let's take a lesson from them as we read this. They're holding up pretty good in the margins. Very effective. All right, qualification, or we're never, we're never going to get to the food. Part number one, qualification of the author, verse one. Jesus is going to give here a couple reasons through powerful imagery as to why he's qualified to say the things that he's about to say. They are this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What are these things? Well, as cryptic and mysterious as they may sound, they're one of the things, praise God, in the book of Revelation that we don't have to guess at. Because if we peek back at the end of chapter 1, Jesus tells us what they are. The seven stars are the seven angels or messengers. Most likely, and again, this is another rabbit trail you guys can go down. It's not something we have time for today. There's different views on if it's celestial or human. The word, though, is messengers. And usually what tips us off as to whether uh, who's being identified as celestial or human is within the context of what's being written. All right? I'm going to go ahead and, and just take it as humans in this case. I believe these are the leaders of the church. Again, like I started, the ones who would be primarily responsible for the DNA that's been built in these churches and the one who would be responsible to basically proclaim these letters and unpack these letters for their churches. I'm just going to go that way. I know it's shallow. Go home and have fun with it. It's, it's a fun one. All right. So right up front, that mystery is solved. Okay. Uh, however, when it comes to the seven stars that Jesus is holding, there have been I believe there's a far more personal, secondary meaning for John and the church in Ephesus, and let me tell you why. In AD 83, the emperor Domitian lost his son as an infant, as a baby. And so what Domitian decided to do is have a coin made, which showed his son sitting on top of the globe, the earth, and surrounding the head of his son were seven stars, and because of this, it is very likely that this imagery was intentional on Jesus' part to say to John and to say to the church, in effect, this dude Domitian, that's been one of the most brutal persecutors of the church, thinks he holds the power in his hand, but he will soon know that I do. Soon he will know that it is I 
the Son of the Most High God that sits in power over the globe, not Domitian's son. It's interesting to consider. Whatever the full intention of Jesus may have been, what we do know for sure is what's being communicated to them here is that Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? Jesus is the head of the church. That's why here we always refer to ourselves as under shepherds, like I mentioned earlier. We don't like the term shepherd. There is one shepherd, one, the chief shepherd, the true shepherd. The rest of us, we're, we're just as roadies. We're the ones running across the stage really low as fast as we can so that we don't take anything off of him, right? We're under shepherds. He's the head of the church. That he never ceases, what this tells us, to hold the ministers in his right hand and never ceases to walk in the midst of the church is evident. The vision assures us that he continues to have full power, full authority, and full ownership over all of it, including this right here. Jesus owns this. And not only does he have full power and ownership, but he is actively, actively engaged and observing and evaluating and making adjustments to that which he owns. And we have to be okay with that sometimes. And it's hard for me to be okay with that sometimes. Change stinks a lot. Seeing people that you love go down the road stinks. In other words, what, what we need to get here is that Jesus is not detached from what his church is doing on earth. And, and this is important because I think with a lot of the other imagery that we pull from scripture, we can get this idea that he's at the right hand of God right now with a curtain. Like, like I want to prepare a place for you and I'll catch you later. Like, like he's not present. And this reminds us that he is present. He's omnipresent. He's there and he's here. So he didn't just, like, leave and send the Holy Spirit and say, I'll catch you on the flip side when I come back. Like, like Jesus is very much, like, he knows exactly what's going on. He cares very much about what we're doing and how we do it. So, so Jesus is extremely present. What is this called? This is called the body of Christ. Who is the head? This thing does not function if the head's not attached. And I just want you to know that the head's attached. Like Jesus is here. He's part of the body. He's with us. He knows us. He cares. Um, I'm somewhere. Let's go to the evaluation, the, the body of the letter. So I don't have it here until 2. The evaluation of the church, verses 2 through 6, which begins with, I know your works. I know your works. Um, this is exciting and terrifying at the same time. I know your works. He's saying, uh, I, I see you. I see you. I'm well aware of your works. I'm well acquainted with them. And if this is true, then he even knows what we're about here at the door. Well. He knows what we've been through. He knows where we've come from. He knows where we're going. He knows what we need. He knows where our heart is and what our intentions are, both obvious and hidden. He knows our challenges. He knows our victories and our triumphs. He knows our defects. And as much as the thought of it scares me, I, I do wish sometimes, like I said earlier, he would just send us an evaluation 
once a year or something. I, like, just, just let me know. Just tell me how it is straight out. You know what I mean? Like the report card. And, and, and the truth is that he did. Like, we're reading it. We're reading it. These are, these are meant to be read by the churches century after century, year after year, no matter where you're found on the map of the globe. This is how we stay calibrated. This is how we stay in line. This is how we continually know his will for us as a body of Christ. To us, we may appear like some little insignificant church on the corner of a map in a sea of exciting big churches, uh, but not to him. Uh, to him, we're a lamp. We're a lampstand in a dying, dark kingdom that he close, pays close attention to. What we do here matters. How we do it matters. I want you to know that. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. These are good words from Jesus, which is nice because it's going to get not so good. Uh, but, but what he's saying, he's complimenting them because they haven't sold out. They haven't sold out. They haven't compromised. They haven't compromised in becoming like the world around them. That's rad. Uh, they weren't being influenced by the rampant sinfulness of the world they lived in. It's good. It seems that they never started being attracted to the sin of the world, though they were continually around it. Continually around it. They couldn't do, you couldn't do life in a city like that without being continually around it. And I also believe that that's the reason why the church in Ephesus was maybe one of the most effective churches that we have recorded for us in the Bible. If you go to Acts 19, you'll find that Luke says that about this church. These guys were a powerhouse in a wicked and perverse place. Why? Because they weren't separatists, but they remained otherworldly, right? In the world, but not of it, which is something worth noting. If you ever, if you ever think that the answer for Christians is to go and huddle together away from everybody else, that's extremely unchristian. You can't do mission that way. You can't carry out the great commission that way. What Jesus has left us on earth to do requires us being in close proximity with people that are not like us. Right? So before you think about moving to that state because they hold your values and you're the same kind of people, it's not a hit on anything but it's very popular right now. There is no promised land that exists on this earth right now. You and I belong in the trenches because the time is short and evil is loud. People need the gospel, but they can't have it if we're not around them. Okay? We are not separatists, and these guys weren't either, which is pretty rad. Rest of verses two and three, uh, two and three you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So here we see Jesus starting out their evaluation by throwing them a bouquet. Okay? He's, he's being really kind here. And actually, these are, these are things that he likes. It's not like he's having to try hard. He digs these things. Right? 
He's opening up with the encouragement, an attaboy, rather than the failure. So he's kind of softening him up for the failure that's coming. Um, he, he, he commends them that they are protectors and crusaders of doctrine, of truth. And we see here that there were false teachers then, just like there are false teachers now. This isn't new. In fact, you can read any epistle in the New Testament and you'll see the evidences of false teaching constantly being fought against. Constantly. No, there, are, there, are, there were false teachers then that needed to be identified and rejected. And yeah, sometimes we even need to name names. Not something I like doing, but sometimes it's necessary. As long as the church and its doctrines have existed, the counterfeits have existed right alongside it. And it always will until Jesus comes back and exterminates all the counterfeits. That's it's just something we gotta, we got to be up against, which means that we constantly have to have our heads here, in this, buried, immersed in the truth, so that we will know a counterfeit when it comes. One of the primary jobs of the true church while on earth is to protect the truth. Not a truth according to us and what we agree with, because there's a lot of stuff I don't get down with in the Bible, and I would probably rather not agree with, but I believe it. I believe it's true. And so, and so this has precedence over what I think. This, this is the baseline, right? But this is the mark of a true church and a true leader and a true teacher in the church. And this, as loose as we may seem here at the door in areas, is the foundation at the door. We want to be about the truth of God. When people come and ask me, what's your church like? Because it sounds like it's a nightclub or stinking something like that, you know, and they're like, the door, like, what is that? Like, what kind of church are you? You know, like a, like a crazy church, like a, you know, a cult. And it's like, and, and all I've said over the years is we're, 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 we're Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming. And I, I feel like that says everything it needs to say, like, that quick. Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming. Bible-believing means that truth is everything to us. It's everything to us. This is one of our primary functions and goals, to protect, promote, proclaim God's truth. And again, not just the part, parts we like. Jesus likes this. We see this here. If we let our eyes jump down to verse 6, let's tackle this one right now too, and not when we get there. We see this group mentioned called the Nicolaitans. They were a sect of Christians that had adopted and mingled much of the Greek philosophies into their Christianity, which is that they heavily employed Gnosticism, which resulted in antinomianism. Yes, there's two big ism words. Okay? Gnosticism simply means that the body is insignificant. They believed that the body was insignificant, which leads to what? Just about anything. You can then live any way you want to and do whatever you want because God doesn't care about the body and what I do with it. That's Gnosticism. Which means, it's very convenient, that now I can go up to the Temple of Diana and I can partake in some of that stuff too. I can go to the big parties and I can partake of drunkenness now. Like I can do all these things and get away with it because God doesn't care about that. He's, he's, already, he's already paid and taken care of everything that I need taken care of. I can do whatever. It's not Christianity. It's false teaching. 
antinomianism, which is what that results in, is justifying things and living in ways that God is opposed to as if they're insignificant to God. In other words, there's no bounds on anything. God doesn't care about what I've done because Jesus already did it all. And it is true that Jesus did it all, that we can't add to it. But it is not true that that is how we now think towards Jesus in the gospel. We've now been awakened and made alive to righteousness because of the gospel, not dead to it. We see the difference now. We didn't before. It's false. And as a result, their brand of truth, the Nicolaitans, became a perverted partial truth, which actually equates to an untruth. The Ephesian church didn't play that game, and Jesus commends them for it. The Ephesians called it what it was and hated it for what it was, and, and so does Jesus. And it is at this point that I, that I wish we could just move on to verse 7, to the outro, and like close up the letter. Um, but the report card's not done. There's like a couple more subjects that need to be graded. So back to verse 4. We see the words, I have this against you. And I mean this with all sincerity. I, I hope these are words that I never have to hear from my Lord. I have this against you. And I, and I want you to know that the, the other pastors here too, um, I know these guys really well. We spend a lot of time together. Not just in these rooms or when we're on the clock. Like we do life together. And these guys that God has given you are the real deal. They are not about their own name. They are not about a book deal. They are not about the money that you guys put in the box. They are not about popularity or ego. These guys want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They want to hear good. They want to please Christ. They want to glorify and honor Jesus in the greatest possible way. There is nothing else there. There is no hidden motivation with your leaders here at this church. And because of that, we don't want to hear words like this. We don't want to hear it. We, we want to do it right. We want to do him right, even though we're terribly imperfect. So thank you guys for your patience and your grace and your prayers. Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And what do you think that was? Question. Is the church to you like, like a habit? A duty? A project? A chore? I'm going to make a, another very risky statement here. I fear that much of the decline that we, and I mean churches in general, have seen in attendance during COVID times has very little to do with many people not coming with COVID. Yeah, I know that's a big risky statement. I think there's a lot of people who legitimately shouldn't be coming for various reasons. I think there's a lot of people that aren't coming because they now have a noble excuse not to. 
and it breaks my heart to see that that's the, the sum total of the worth of their Christianity and the church. For a lot of people, the church has become a duty, a, just a tiring project, dare I even say a burden, but this, this applies to many who still show up too. Do you find yourself going through the motions of serving Jesus and others because you're just needing to be faithful? You have the need to be faithful? Or is it because it's your joy? It's your passion. It is your life. It is your everything. Is Jesus your everything? Do you find yourself doing church for a reason other than because you love Jesus? And I'll bite. I have. I have gone through seasons of ministry without a joy because Jesus isn't my everything and it sucks. It's like the worst because you're putting out and you're putting out and you're putting out, you're working and working and striving and striving to chase that, to get, to get that joy back. And it doesn't come. It doesn't come by how much we do or how faithful we are in things. It's not designed to be like that. The joy isn't there, and I wonder why Jesus isn't holding up his end of the deal in those times. That's what I think. It's like, you told me that I would have this joy, like, unspeakable. Like, yeah, my life would be hard, and there would be tribulation and trial, but that your, your burden's light. And, like, even though, like, there's every reason for us to think that our world's falling apart, you're going to be completely fulfilled in me. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be dragging this cross along, but you're going to have this joy that you otherwise couldn't have in anything else. And so when I'm thinking, like, why don't I have this? Why aren't you keeping up your end of the deal? Not realizing that it's me that wandered away from the relationship. He's not the one that wanders. We're the ones that wander. He's always right where he's been. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, what, why are you taking a detour? This is what's being talked about here. We got a church here who is really good at remaining faithful, at things that they should be faithful over, but there is no joy to it. And when there's no joy to it, when there's no relation here to what we pour out, there's no effectiveness and there's no power. I see that firsthand too. I've gone through that stuff in my life where I'm working and working and working and going, why is nothing working? Why is it all falling apart? Does this sound right? And it's because we move. It's because we move. Jesus is our only source of hope, and he is what we need most. If we don't have it, there's not a lot of glorifying of him going on out of what we're doing. I think of, um, I think of, Mary and Martha, right, is I think where, where we've been uh, taught this really, really clearly. Um, if I can find it. 
Jesus clearly teaches us this principle when he goes to Martha and Mary's house for coffee and scones, right? You guys remember that, that whole story? And what does he say? How does he conclude the lesson? Because he went there to have fellowship with two women and he only got it with one. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. And where was she found? At his feet. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not, listen to this, which will not be taken from her. Joy through relationship. In other words, Martha, though it was nice what she was doing, it was a nice act that she was performing in the kitchen. It was a lost act. It was lost. Not effective. But Mary, in being enamored with the person and the presence of Jesus, performed an act that would remain and endure. And it was all centered around fellowship. It was all centered around relationship. Falling more and more in love with Jesus. Instead of saying, what can I do? What can I do? It says in Luke 10.39, where that is found, that while Martha was running around stressed and obsessed with behavior and duty, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, observing, absorbing, worshiping. See, Christianity is not so much about what we can do for him. We talk about this here all the time. It's not so much about what we can do for him as it is about becoming more and more obsessed and amazed with who he is and what he's done for us. That's Christianity. And when we remain in this obsession, we're then propelled to go out and do things rightly, in a right way, where there's joy and there's power and there's effectiveness. These guys forgot that. The Ephesian church forgot that. They left it. They remained faithful to good doctrine, faithful to call out others who failed to have it, but they became unfaithful in the love which they should have for the one which they're doing it for. They were excellent whistleblowers. You guys know any of these? But less than impressive lovers of God and men. We can become so concerned with being right, and I've been there. I come out of a, of a lot of very conservative reform circles where nobody knows as much as those guys do, and I'm one of them, so. We can become so concerned with being right that we can end up being totally wrong, cynical, cold toward God and towards our neighbor. And we're off when we are. We're off. So, so what now? What should these guys do? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Three things. Remember, repent, reactivate. <laughs> remember, repent, reactivate. Or what? Jesus says, or I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Turn or burn, baby. No, that's not what he's saying. They're already saved. There's no burning going. <laughs> like, turn or the lights, I'm, you know, the lights going out. Like, you know, we're turning it off. In a very real sense, Jesus is saying, if you don't course correct, you're better off 
out of the world than you are in it. That sounds heavy, but that's really in effect what's being said here. And I think we ought to consider that. Seems kind of harsh, but if someone's representation of you is a misrepresentation, isn't it reasonable to want to shut it down? Our mark as Christians, according to this John in his first epistle, is one of love. Both to him and to others. Love. That's the mark of a Christian. That's the mark of his church. It's love. They're inseparable. This love and this love, John tells us in John chapter, or 1 John. All right, they're inseparable. And if that mark becomes invisible, our power is gone, our effectiveness is gone, our witness is gone, our testimony is gone. But because this is such harsh and heavy stuff, I want to make sure that you catch what is so awesome about what's in this text. You ready? I don't want you to miss the good news of this negative evaluation. And that is that there's an invitation here to repent. Like he, he could have he just been like, that's it, I'm, th- I'm throwing these guys away, right? Like this, this lampstand is going into the trash. No. He lets them know their error and then calls them back to non-error. He's like, I don't want to trash you. I don't want to send you away and I don't want to turn your light off. I don't want to close your door. I, I want you to just course correct. I want you to come back. That's rad. They don't deserve that. How cool is that that you and I get to repent? I, I know that it's a bad word. Most of my life in the church, repent has been the R word. It's just like, gosh, you know, like, I don't know why. I don't know, I don't know why it's always been so negative. What, what a beautiful thing that we are invited by the God of the Most High that we've offended and fallen short with, are invited to turn, to turn to him. He's calling us home. He's just calling us home when he's doing that. That's all it means. We get to, we get to course correct. We don't have to live in, in the garbage that we're living in, right? God renews us. He, he's in the business of renewal, redeeming, restoring fixing ugly things up and making them just beautiful. Like he loves that. And that's who you and I are, right? That this is a room full of that. He's inviting them to come out of their error. He's not doing it by saying, do better, try harder. He's doing it by inviting them back to that which won them over in the beginning. That is being fascinated with, amazed by, and head over heels Jesus again. Don't you want that? Do you, do you remember what it was like when he saved you? Do you remember what that felt like? It changed everything for me. I did not get out of bed the same way I got out of bed all those years of my life previous to that. There, there, was, a, there was this weird pep in my step. It was different. I knew that things would never be the same because I had met the Most High God. And that he wanted something to do with me. That I, that I never had those things that I did and, and said over me anymore. That he had taken them and, and put those in the furnace. That he had burnt my list, my rap sheet. 
and that Satan didn't have those things on me anymore. To know that I was clean and right before God and that I would see him one day and that, and that if he was for me, who could be against me? It changed everything. It changed everything. I was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And then it fades slowly. Just, just like a, a new present, you know, when you were a kid, I would get that, that thing for Christmas I've been waiting all year for. That thing would come, and I'd look at it for about three days and then stop looking at it, you know? And we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't afford to deal with Jesus that way. We can't afford to. Not only do we need him, he's the, he's the best thing for us. Our life falls apart. We fall apart. If we're not walking in active community and relationship with him, our joy goes away. Our depression gets overwhelming. And we get cynical and we get cold. It is the ongoing knowledge of Christ's love for us that propels us into what is truly good works done well. You and I don't need more polish the longer we're Christians. We need more Jesus. We need more gospel. And we've already spoken to verse 6 back when we were in verse 2, so let's jump to the final verse. Sorry, this is long. I told these guys, like, we'd probably need to break these letters into, into like, two weeks apiece. And they were like, why would we do that? And I'm like, because I can't, do, I can't do one of these, like, in 35 minutes. I feel like we're cheating so much of it already. Seven, the prize to the overcomer, the reward to the overcomer. He who has an ear, how many of you have one of these? Touch it real quick. You guys got that? Cool. This is for you then. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, it just so happens that in one of the outer courtyards to the temple of Artemis, there stood a giant tree. And this tree symbolized life. After all, Artemis is the goddess of fertility and life, right? And women hoping to become pregnant would come from all over the world in hopes to touch this tree. And people who wanted a more abundant life and health would come from all over the world to touch this tree. In other words, this tree in the courtyard of Diana's temple was a source of hope and the fullness of life for the Ephesians and the pagan world. Of course, Christians may have felt cheated in that, but they didn't participate in that. I don't know. They might have felt left out. But Jesus wants them to know that if they stay faithful to him till the end and endure, that they will not be left out of touching the tree. He wants them to know that if they remain faithful to him, that he will give them access to the real and true tree of life, the eternal tree of life. Some of us have been looking to, desiring, laboring over false trees, Every region, every country has them. That false tree that we think is life-giving, but it's not. We've had it in America for a long time. And that tree is now withering. It's now burning. 
You know why? Because it's not the tree you're looking for. It ain't it. As much as we liked it and enjoyed it, it's not it. The, uh, he says here that that tree is in the paradise of God. The Roman emperors were known for their extravagant gardens, and the common people could only hope to ever get a glimpse inside of one of them, but most people never would. They were a thing of legend, these gardens of the emperors, and they were referred to as the emperor's paradiso, which is paradise. So consider once again what this language and this imagery from Jesus meant to John and that church who were brutally persecuted by these emperors with these paradises that the church would never be invited into. These guys who never stood a chance at glimpsing the inside of one of these to hear that the day was going to come when they'd be invited into the paradise of God to touch the tree, to eat from it. What a glorious thought. What a glorious hope. It will be worth it for them and everything that they've gone through when they step into the paradise of God and touch that tree. Everything. And it'll be worth everything to us and everything we've gone through when we do as well. How is it possible that sinful man should gain access to the paradise of God and his tree? The perfect payment of Jesus for the sinner. That's it which is why we're going to do communion today. That's it. No one gets any rewards in heaven if it's not for Jesus' work on our behalf. And that's why we do this. If you are not a believer, if you do not personally know Christ, if you have not had that head-on collision with him where he's become your everything and you know it, this is going to be an insignificant cracker with insignificant amount of juice. But for us who know him, who have been saved by him, and know that apart from him we are nothing, this is everything. And it represents his body broken on our behalf so that ours wouldn't have to be, and his blood poured out on our behalf so that ours wouldn't have to be. It's all him. God, thank you. Thank you for how patient. I'm just thinking of this while I'm looking at this sermon right now, how patient you are with, with people who, who quite frankly, um, just, just don't deserve it so much of the time. Thank you uh, for waiting. Thank you for handling us carefully. Thank you also for showing us what truth looks like, what error looks like, and then inviting us back to your side. Thank you that you um, are always eager to redeem, restore, and make new. Thank you for your precious son who died so that we may have life by faith alone. May we get to know him better and better every day. May we fall more and more in love with him every day. God, restore to us that, that love that we had at first, God. Don't let us forget what it was like. Don't, for, don't let us forget who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.